C.S. Lewis, in his book, Mere Christianity, writes this. Everyone says forgiveness is a lovely idea until they have something to forgive. He's conveying this idea that we love the idea or maybe even the theory of forgiveness and even being forgiven, right? We love what, how it feels when someone says the words, I forgive you. But the practice of extending forgiveness, well, that's much harder, right? Sometimes saying those three little words, I forgive you, can be the hardest words to say and really mean. And any given week we find, I know I do for me, that I'm in need of forgiveness. And I'm also the one having to forgive. It's a daily part. It's a weekly part of my routine. Forgiveness is just part of what it means to be human, to have meaningful relationships. We learn from an early age that we're often harmed in ways that are big and small, accidental and on purpose, and everything in between. And at the same time, not only are we harmed, but we realize that we harm others in ways that are big and small, accidental and on purpose, and everything in between. And when that happens, it leaves a brokenness in those relationships, a brokenness that needs to be repaired in order for those relationships to continue. Dr. Martin Luther King, in a sermon on forgiveness, said these words, Forgiveness does not mean ignoring what has been done or putting a false label on an evil act. It means, rather, that the evil act no longer remains as a barrier to the relationship. Brokenness can rupture relationships between families, individuals in those families. It can break relationships among friends, among coworkers and neighbors. We recognize that this brokenness not only can exist between individuals, but it can also exist between groups of people, right? So that forgiveness is needed between genders, between societies, nations, and races. And on top of all of that, there's this question that lingers and looms over all of us about our relationship with God. How can we be forgiven with God? Many live their lives with this nagging sense of guilt and indebtedness to God that arises from the intuitive understanding that everybody lives with. There's this distance we feel with God due to a brokenness in that relationship. We know we've sinned. I've never met someone who said that they are perfect in every way, shape, and form. And that brokenness, that sin that enters into our lives, we know that it causes a disruption, a brokenness in our relationship with God. We know we've sinned, and despite our best efforts to forget about it, despite our best efforts to avoid it, or make up for it, we know that something needs to happen in order for the barrier to be removed so that our relationship with God can be restored. So this morning, we come to that line in the creed that says, I believe in the forgiveness of sins. And as Christians, we believe that our sin is not merely an inconvenience to be managed, but a problem that must be solved. We, re we need to reject this morning this propensity in our culture to minimize sin, to in fact even remove that word from our vocabulary and to see it for what it is so that we can address it. We believe that in Jesus Christ, our sins can be forgiven and our relationship with God and our relationship with those around us can be meaningfully restored. We're going to find this morning that not only um, do we need to uh, ask for forgiveness, but that our forgiveness comes at a cost. Every time those words are uttered, 
I forgive you. There's a cost associated with that forgiveness. And finally, we're going to see today that those who have received forgiveness, that a forgiven people must be a forgiving people. So today, our outline is this. We want to assess the problem of sin. We want to marvel at God's provision of forgiveness. And then we want to consider what it means to be a people of forgiveness. So we'll see the problem of sin, the provision of forgiveness, and the people of forgiveness. Let's begin first by looking at the problem of sin. Now, as we begin, sin is one of those words that our culture has just dubbed as archaic and out of date. You can, we can talk about moral evils. We can talk about atrocities. We can talk about these kind of heinous crimes like terrorism and mass shootings and racism, but it's never called sin. If you listen to the news, if you read the paper, that word is never used anymore. And the reason is, I think, is because the word sin just gets far too personal. When we talk about sin out there, we immediately have to recognize, wait a minute, I also have sin in here. But sin is one of those words in the Christian vocabulary that we simply cannot lose. And the reason is the Bible uses that word to describe the cancer that's eating away at the human soul. And to deny it, ignore it, or wish it away simply will not do. Look what the Apostle John says in chapter 1, verse 8. He says this, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. See, the way to deal with a problem is not by pretending it's not there, by self-deception or avoidance, but it's, it's looking at it head on. If you tried to deny that you had cancer eating you out from the inside out, would your denial of it or, or, or refusing to say the word cancer, would it make it go away? No. The way to deal with it is to call it what it is, to address it as a problem and seek healing, to seek intervention for that cancer before it has its way. So what is sin and why is it such a problem? In the Bible, we've got a definition here for you trying to just summarize all of the teaching in the Bible in a compact definition. Sin is the catch-all word for any attitude or action, whether trivial or paramount, unintentional or intentional, whether by commission or omission, that harms God's creation and is ultimately offensive to a holy God. Now let me unpack that definition for you. What this definition covers is this. It covers our attitudes, our thoughts, our emotions, our motives, our words, and our actions. It recognizes that sin lurks in all of those, whether spoken or unspoken, and our attitudes and our actions, that there's something driving even in our motivations. Our sin doesn't have to make the news or go viral to be uh, uh, counted as sin because sin involves both the small stuff and the big stuff. And when it comes to sin, not only do our motives matter, but our outcomes of our actions matter. So that sin can be present in both what's driving the action and the outcome of that action. We also understand that sin can be doing wrong things, and sin can also be failing to do the right thing. Our sin brings collateral damage to people, places, our environment, things around us. It contributes to the decay and destruction and disruption of God's good world. And ultimately, what this definition is telling us, that all sin, even the sins that just harm those around us, are ultimately and finally offensive to a holy and good God. 
we find that sin pollutes and contaminates us in everything around us. Sin is breaking God's law, and sin is trampling on human flourishing. Sin perverts what is good for selfish and manipulative purposes. Listen to how J.I. Packer summarizes this for us. Sin is lawlessness in relation to God as our lawgiver. It's rebellion in relation to God as a rightful ruler. Sin is missing the mark in relation to God as our designer. It's guilt in relation to God as judge, and it's uncleanness in relation to God as the Holy One. Now, I'm going to walk through a couple of verses really quick just to show you how this is all throughout Scripture. All these verses kind of help support the definition that I summarized for you. So we see in Titus chapter 3, verse 3, For we ourselves, Paul's writing to Christians, he's reminding them of who they once were. We were all once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Galatians 5, 19 through 21. Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sin is sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. Paul says, I warn you like I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. 1 John 3, 4, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. James 4, 3, he says, you ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives. There we see sin um, even disrupting our motives so that you can spend it on your pleasures. Matthew 5, 27 and 28, you have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But Jesus said this, I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Right? Sin is not just the things we do, but it's the things going on inside our heart. And James 4.17 says, whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. I just chose a few. It's one of those words you just cannot erase out of the Bible. It's a massive problem, and it infects everybody. These are just a handful of the many verses in the Bible about what sin is. Now let's consider the effects of sin. Why is sin such a problem? You see, when God created the world, he created a good world without sin. It was a world that was filled with harmony and peace, love and order, goodness and flourishing. And it seems like too good to be true because we just can't even imagine a world like that. But Genesis 131 says this, And God saw everything he made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. But very quickly, our first parents doubted the goodness of God. They thought he was withholding from, him, from them something that they needed in order to be uh, truly happy, content, and fulfilled. And so through their disobedience, they rejected the relationship with God. They brought disaster and condemnation, not only on themselves, but on all of creation. And what sin, that little word is describing, is this massive problem that every other sin that every other problem stems from. So where you see a problem, where you see something that's not good and true and beautiful, you can trace its root all the way back to sin. Wherever you see decay, disruption, where you see disease and death, where you see disappointment and disaster and any of its kind, it's because of sin. 
And not only is it all around us, but it exists in all of us as well. The Bible teaches in 4K detail the depth of our depravity and sin. I'll give you a couple more verses. Psalm 51.5, David writes this, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Isaiah 64.6, We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities, like the wind, take us away. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And Ephesians 2 verse 1, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Again, just a handful of verses. I left a lot on the cutting room floor. From birth, throughout life, all the way to our death, the problem of sin remains. Our sin makes us dead and therefore in need of life. We're guilty and need forgiveness. We're polluted and need, and we need cleansing. No one, no one in this room, no one in this world is exempt from sin and its devastation. Listen to how the prophet Isaiah describes the problem of our sin, and in particular, how our sin separates us from God. Isaiah 59, verse 2. Your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. What he's getting at is that our sin defiles us and makes us guilty. Our sins destroy all that is good and true and beautiful in the world. But most importantly, Scripture tells us our sin separates us from God. See, God is life. It's one of the central declarations of the Bible that he's life. And if you're separated from him, if you're separated from life, not only are you cut off relationally from him, not only are you cut off from the joy of knowing him, but if you're cut off from life itself, you're dead. And that's exactly how the Bible describes us. Look what he goes on to say in verse 9 and 10. Therefore, justice is far from us, and righteousness does not overtake us. We hope for light, and behold, darkness. We hope for brightness, but we walk in gloom. We grope for the wall like the blind. We grope like those who have no eyes. And we stumble at noon as in the twilight among those in full vigor. We are like dead men. This is how the Bible is describing every one of us. We long for light, but because of sin, there's only darkness. We long for hope, but because of sin, there's only gloom. Our sin makes us blind and we stumble and fall. And because of our sin, the Bible says we are dead. It might look like we're walking around as alive people, but we are dead men walking. And I know that may sound grim because it is. And some of you are saying, hey, man, it's Easter. Lighten up. I came here for a sermon about hope and grace. And let me tell you something. This is a sermon about hope and grace. But if we don't understand the problem of our sin personally, not just cosmically, not like it's out there, but if we don't understand our sin right here, we'll never understand the necessity of the cross and the beauty and the power of the resurrection. You see, before good news is good news, you have to hear the bad news. And the problem of our sin is utter terror. It is more than we can solve on our own. And the reality is our forgiveness will not come without a cost. Now let's turn to that cost and see God's provision of forgiveness. So, so far, we've been looking at the devastating effects of our sin, right? Our sin pollutes us. It stains us. Our sin is a weight and it condemns us. 
our sins are trespasses against a holy God that demand judgment, and our sin creates a conflict that separates us from God. Now, the reason the gospel is called good news is because every single problem that I just articulated in sin is solved in, provided by the forgiveness of God. It's solved in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so as you read through the scriptures, you're going to see words like salvation and redemption and restoration and reconciliation and justification, and there's more. Because every single word like that is packed with meaning and addresses a specific problem that our sin creates and how in Christ there's provision for that exact need. But to narrow our focus this morning, the Apostles' Creed says it like this. I believe in the forgiveness of sins. Look at John 1, 9. We read it earlier. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What the Apostle John is clear here, he says God is a God who will pursue and he will forgive. See, our sin is what separates us from God, and we need reconciliation. We need forgiveness in order to be joined back, reconciled to him again. Now, let's talk about forgiveness for a minute. See, forgiveness is one of those um, uh, ideas that has uh, some different aspects to it. I'm going to highlight two of them. Forgiveness has a legal aspect to it and a relational aspect. So first, let's think about this legal aspect, right? If a person commits a crime and they're convicted, then that person is obligated to serve a sentence, right? They have to pay a penalty in order to pay back the legal debt to society. And before that person can rejoin society again, they either have to what? Do the time and pay back uh, society or they can be pardoned, right? They can be forgiven. Now, if they're forgiven, what, the, what society is essentially doing is absorbing that legal debt. We're saying you don't have to pay it. We will essentially cover that loss for you. We don't hold the record of wrong against you anymore. We can also think about that legal debt in financial terms, right? That one was more judicial. We can also think of legal debt in financial terms. If a person owes another person or institution money, that person now has a what? financial debt that either must be paid in full or that debt can be forgiven. But until the debt is paid or it's forgiven, that debt remains. And when a financial debt is forgiven, the person who loaned out the money absorbs the debt, right? It's not that money magically appears to repay the loan. When a person forgives a debt, he essentially pays the debt himself, right? If, if you, oh, Eric, you owe me 20 bucks, okay? He doesn't. But let's say he did, right? Eric, you owe me 20 bucks. And weeks go by, I'm like, Eric, where's the money, man? And he's like, oh, man, it's been a hard week, you know? And I say, okay, let's, we'll, we'll go to next week. And it goes on and on and on. There, there, every time we see each other, there's going to be this tension, right? Because he knows he owes me, and I know he owes me. Every, he's going to be trying to, you know, look away from me. But I know that there's something going on there. But when I come to him and say, Eric, I forgive you your debt. It's not like I just found 20 bucks in my pocket to pay for the debt, right? I just absorb it. Who pays the cost of that debt? I do. Since he didn't pay, I pay the debt. When I forgive him, I am paying the debt. That's forgiveness in legal terms. But forgiveness also has a relational aspect to it as well, right? Relationally speaking, when we harm one another, there's a relational debt that occurs, right? So if you harm someone, there's an attack on their humanity, 
on their dignity. And we feel it. That, that relational account takes a hit. That feeling when someone breaks trust or harms you or wrongs you, that feeling of disconnection is because there's been, there's been something taken away from you. Right? There's a debt happening there. The relationship will remain disjointed until the person who's been offended is ready to release the debtor, absorb the debt, and extend forgiveness. Transactionally, that's what's going on when we extend forgiveness to one another. The one who extends forgiveness gives up their right for payback. They give up their right for vengeance, and they say, I don't hold this against you anymore. They don't say it was just okay. They don't say it didn't matter. They're saying, I, it did matter, but I'm not holding it against you anymore. Now, what ties these ideas together, the legal aspect and this relational aspect? It's this idea of debt. Where there, need, where there needs to be forgiveness is because there's a debt. There's this imbalance, and the debt creates a separation that needs to be resolved. Now, with all of that set up, think about that now in terms of our uh, relationship with God, how our sin separates us from God and how we are in need of forgiveness. Right? Our sin separates us from God, and it creates a debt that now needs to be paid. So legally speaking, we've wronged a holy and righteous God. Right? We've committed offensive crimes against him, and therefore a penalty must be paid. There's even an indebtedness that we all realize uh, when we understand that everything we have comes from God, that he is the one who's given us everything. And often we are ungrateful recipients who fail to acknowledge him. Not to mention, we often use those generous gifts God gives us for selfish means. And relationally speaking, we've rejected God's love and relationship with him. Our sin has brought an offense that's left our relationship with God disjointed. That's why it can feel hard to talk to him. That's why it can feel hard to uh, go, even go to church knowing that you're walking into a place where you're going to experience God's presence. That feeling of hesitation that's what the Bible calls this separation. You know there's a debt. You know there's something that needs to be forgiven. That's why Jesus, when he taught his disciples how to pray, he told them, you need to ask God for forgiveness. Maybe you've not noticed it before in the Lord's Prayer. We have the words on the screen, Matthew 6, 9 and 13. Jesus says, well, pray like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Anyone, those words sound familiar? We've heard those words before, right? Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And what? Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Right there, Jesus is, is, is identifying our sins as debts to God. He was teaching them, listen, when you sin, it creates a debt. And the only hope you ever have of being debt-free is to ask God to forgive the debt. But remember, forgiveness is never free. It always comes at a cost. It might be free for the one who receives it, but it's not free for the one who extends it. The one who forgives always absorbs the debt. That's a principle that's universal in all forgiveness. And what the Apostles' Creed joyously declares is that in Christ, we can have the forgiveness of our sins. That barrier that sin creates can be broken down. And indeed, 
On a day like today, on the Resurrection Sunday, we are joyously declaring that the barrier has been broken down by God. Colossians chapter 2, verse 13 through 14. Listen to this. And you who were dead in your trespasses, remember we talked about how sin makes us dead? God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. Now, how did he do it? Look at me. Look at this. By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. All of our debts, legal and relational, were counted and recorded, all of them. God is infinite in knowledge. He's omniscient. He knows everything, and God can count them all. There are countless sins I've committed that I can't even name. It's literally not possible, but God knows each and every one of them. I am sinfully unaware of the vastness of my record of debt, but God being rich and mercy and love and grace for everyone in Christ took our massive record of debt and he nailed it to the cross, nailed it there, And then listen to this. When Jesus on the cross took his last breath, with that final breath, he uttered out these words, it is finished. Now that is a Greek phrase. That that phrase, it is finished, is a Greek word. It's one word. And it was a legal term that means paid in full. It was used for legal debt and financial debts to say, I release this debtor of their debts. It is finished. The debt has now been paid in full. If you owed someone money in the ancient world and you paid it off or the debt was forgiven, they would stamp it. It is finished. Paid in full. Any of you ever had a a loan and you got that letter in the mail from the bank that said, it is finished. The loan is covered. It is paid in full, right? If you haven't, those are glorious letters that come in, okay? Trust me, those are ones you want to frame on the wall. I'm almost done paying off my student loans. I am probably going to frame that one. It is finished. The debt is paid in full. Our debts were paid for by the broken body and shed blood of Christ on the cross. Listen to how Paul says it in Ephesians 1 verse 7. In him, in Christ, we have redemption through his blood the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. See, when God forgives your sin, he doesn't pretend it's not there. He doesn't overlook your debt. At infinite cost to himself, he pays the debt with his own life. When Jesus died, our sins died with him and all our debts were paid in full. And then in victory, after three days, Jesus rose from the grave, leaving our sin and the record of our debt in the grave. That's why Christians aren't just good Friday people. We don't just declare Jesus died for my sins. We are resurrection people. If he stayed dead, then sin and death would have defeated him. But Jesus defeated death and sin by rising from the grave. Like all forgiveness, like all forgiveness, you have to receive it. See, I can extend forgiveness to you. I can say I no longer hold this debt against you, but You have to receive that release, don't you? You have to receive that forgiveness. Extended forgiveness doesn't become applied forgiveness until you receive it. I can forgive you all day long, but until I say thank you and I receive it, it doesn't become meaningful and personal to me. Have you asked God to forgive you 
of your sins. Have you? See, all the work is done. It happened 2,000 years ago. Jesus died on the cross to forgive you of your sins. It's there. You just have to ask for it. And if you haven't asked him for it, what's stopping you? Why not ask him? Here's how you do it. First, we confess our sins. That simply just means to acknowledge that there's something to be forgiven. And then God will be faithful and just, which means he will be true to his word. He will be faithful to do his part. He will be faithful not to sweep your sin under the rug, but he'll actually deal with it. By applying the penalty that Jesus served on your behalf and on my behalf, he'll take that executed sentence and apply it to you so that justice is served, so that Jesus takes your penalty instead of you having to serve it. He took our penalty that our sin deserved and gave us his life instead. And when we ask for forgiveness, God will forgive you your sins. Your debt will be forgiven and you will be cleansed from all unrighteousness. That's how we ask for and receive forgiveness and faith. And you don't have to do anything. You can literally ask him today and receive forgiveness. So we've been looking at the problem that our sin creates and the provision of his forgiveness. Finally, let's look at what it means to become a people of forgiveness. Look with me at Matthew 18, verse 21. Peter came up to Jesus and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Therefore, Jesus goes into this parable. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. And when he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. So here's what happens. Jesus, uh, Peter comes up to Jesus and he says, hey, if my brother keeps sinning against me, how often am I required to actually forgive him, right? He's addressing a, probably a common problem, right? Because people harm us and we need to extend forgiveness to them all the time. And so Jesus says, you know, um, a lot, like 77 times seven, or 77 times. So then he opens up this parable to kind of explain what he's talking about. And he says there's this, this man, this, this king, who um, had a bunch of servants, and they all owed him some money. And he came, came the day of reckoning, right, when it came to, hey, it's time to pay your debts. And when he began to settle, there was one who was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Now, we don't operate in a talent money system anymore. 10,000 talents would be the equivalent of today $6 billion, so I don't know what this guy was doing, but he owed this guy $6 billion. I mean, that's kind of impressive, you know? And obviously, Jesus is speaking in, in, in kind of a hyperbolic sense and hyperbole, saying this guy owed him more than the servant could ever pay. And so verse 25, and since he could not pay, obviously, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had in payment to be made. And so the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. So he begs for mercy. He begs for more time to try to pay the debt, even though it's a debt he could never pay. He could never work off this in multiple lifetimes. Verse 27, and out of pity for him, the master of the servant released him and forgave him the debt. 
Now the master has compassion on the servant, knowing it's a debt that he could never pay. So he forgives the servant the entire debt. Now remember, did the, did the master get some kind of $10,000 um, talent grant to be paid, uh, you know, that was given to him in order to pay off people's debts? No. The master absorbed the loss, effectively paying for the man's debt. He released the man and the prison sentence that he deserved. Now remember, this is a picture of how we've been forgiven. Our sin accrues a debt that we could never pay, and God in his compassion forgives our sin and forgives our debt. Now look what happens in verse 28. But when that same servant, this forgiven servant, found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, he seized him and began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. Now this servant, this forgiven guy, who, who had the $6 billion debt, he finds one of his buddies, a fellow servant, who owed him 100 denarii, which is about $12,000. Okay, I'm not saying that's chump change, but comparatively speaking, $6 billion versus $12,000, there's no comparison, right? It's still a large amount. But keep in mind, this guy's just been forgiven $6 billion, and very quickly he's out choking this other guy. Look with me at verse 29. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. Notice those are the exact same words the other guy used to, uh, had said. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Now the servant in debt pleaded, just like the other servant had done, but instead of having compassion, he's thrown this man in prison. Now all the other servants are looking around watching and, and were just shocked to see that kind of ungratefulness. You can imagine the, the master's compassion, word about that has started to travel because a word like that is too good to keep to yourselves. And that, that good news is going around about the, the compassion and the mercy and the generosity of the master. And so these other servants are shocked to see this forgiven man acting with such ungratefulness. And the Bible says they reported what they saw to the master. Verse 32, then his master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. Now Jesus summarizes so also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. See, Jesus teaches this parable to teach a principle. Forgiven people must be a forgiving people. He is so straightforward and clear. If you withhold forgiveness to others, then you will not be forgiven either. See, when you realize that you've been forgiven such a debt, and then withhold forgiveness, it reveals an ungrateful heart that clearly doesn't understand the grace that's been shown to you. When you realize the debt of your sin and how much it costs God to forgive it, your heart should fill with gratitude to extend the same grace and forgiveness to those who have wronged you. You've been forgiven a debt of $6 billion. Will you not forgive a debt of 12000 to one of your fellow forgiven? 
John M. Perkins, in his book, One Blood, writes this. To forgive is to make a decision to cancel a debt that you are owed and not hold it against your offender. There is no forgiveness without a debt. And when we realize the enormity of our own debt, it makes forgiveness possible. So when you find it hard to forgive, remember the enormity of your debt that no longer looms over you. Debt, doesn't it loom over you and it feels oppressive? And to realize that it's been removed, that you can walk in freedom now. By grace, extend that same kind of forgiveness to others. By grace, we are a forgiven people, and with grace, we should be a people of forgiveness. See, forgiveness is not forgetting that something has happened. God doesn't forget our sin in order to forgive it. It's impossible for God to forget. He's all-knowing, which means he can't forget anything. Forgiveness is not God forgetting what has occurred, but God deciding to love and remember what he knows all too well. See, when the Bible says that God remembers our sins no more, it doesn't mean that he forgets our sin. What it means is he no longer counts our sin against us. Why? Because our sin has been accounted to Christ. Forgiveness is not burying your pain. It's not condoning harmful and hurtful acts. It's not making someone slowly repay the debt over time. Forgiveness doesn't mean that consequences disappear. It's not convincing yourself that it was really your fault. It's not convincing yourself that it really didn't hurt. It's not some kind of reverse psychology or spinning the story so that you can finally adopt some different version of reality. Forgiveness is not forgetting, downplaying, disregarding, or pretending. To forgive is to look with clarity and vulnerability. Forgiveness is acknowledging that what happened actually hurt, that it mattered, that it was real. And that's the first step in forgiveness. Then you make a choice to give up your right for payback. You give up your right to hold this debt over that person anymore. Instead of demanding payback, you extend forgiveness. Now, forgiveness doesn't mean that you don't create healthy boundaries with harmful people who are willing to unchange. Forgiveness doesn't mean that trust is restored automatically overnight or that there's not real work to be done to find restoration and reconciliation. In fact, sometimes full restoration and reconciliation may not be possible, it may not even be profitable, and it may not be wise. But that said, forgiveness does mean releasing that drive and the right for payback, releasing the debt that that person owes you. Now, I'm not saying forgiveness is easy. Saying I forgive you are some of the hardest words to say. I want to close today with an example of forgiveness from a woman named Corey Tenboom. Corey lived through the, the horror of the Holocaust she was a prisoner at the concentration camp called Ravensbrück. Now, the, obviously, in our day and age, we know full well the atrocities of the concentration camps. And let me tell you, in her memoirs, The Hiding Place, Corey recounts her experience of them all. She was overworked, beaten, malnourished, forced to live in inhumane barracks. She lived under the constant fear and terror. Her family was taken away from her. Her dignity was destroyed, and her humanity was stripped from her. 
And years later, after she was freed, she began to travel and tell her story. And she spoke about how her faith in Jesus Christ sustained her during, the, uh, during her time of imprisonment at Ravensbrook. And she would, in these um, gatherings, speak of God's forgiveness and the need for people to forgive those who had harmed them. Then in 1947, she was speaking in Munich, and she was giving one of these messages about forgiveness. And it was in that meeting that her forgiveness was put to the test. At the end of her talk, a man, um, an older man, came up to her and stepped forward to greet her. And immediately, Corey recognized him. He was one of the most vicious guards at at Ravensbrook. He, uh, in particular, he was one of the men who used to mock the women prisoners as they showered. I mean, just think about the degradation that she felt. Think about what she would have been feeling in that moment as he walked up to her, probably not even recognizing her, but she knew that face. She knew that grimace. She knew that grin. And Corey said these words, I remembered him and the leather crop swinging from his belt. I was face to face with one of my captors and my blood seemed to freeze. The guard went on to tell her how in the years since the war that he had become a Christian, and now how his only hope was in the fact that God had forgiven him for all the cruel things he had done. And after they talked for a few minutes, he reached out his hand to Corey and asked her, will you also forgive me? Will you forgive me? And as the guard stood there waiting, Corey wrestled. You can imagine what she was going through. She had just given this talk on forgiveness. She knew in her soul she had to forgive, but she didn't feel like forgiving, and neither would us. Listen to what was going on in her mind as she recounts that moment in her book, The Hiding Place. She says this, I knew that forgiveness is an act of the will and that the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. And as I lifted my hand, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder, It raced down my arm, and it sprung into our joined hands. And then this healing warmth seemed to flood my whole being, bring tears to my eyes. And then she said these words, I forgive you, brother, with all my heart. She goes on to say, for a long moment, we grasped each other's hands, the former guard and the former prisoner. I had never known God's love so intensely as I did then. But even so, I realized it was not my love. I had tried and did not have the power. It was the power of the Holy Spirit. See, in that moment, Corey had a choice. She could rehearse in her mind over and over what had happened to her, over and over, knowing that she had lost her sister, her best friend, her family, and she could have decided, and no one would have wronged her. No one would have faulted her for not willing to extend forgiveness. But she would have grown bitter and justified in her anger. But instead, she decided to release the debt, put it behind her, and find healing, not only for her, but also for her oppressor. Friends, that is forgiveness. That's what's been extended to you and me, and that's what we're called to extend to others. That's what God did for us in Christ And by his grace, we are called to do the same. So Seven Mile Road, as we leave here this morning on Resurrection Sunday, let's remember that our sin is not an inconvenience to be managed or a nuisance that will simply just go away on its own. 
Our sin is a costly problem that must be addressed. And Jesus paid the cost to cancel our debt by nailing it to the cross. And he rose again in victory so that everyone who trusts in him can have life. And as a forgiven people, let's also be a forgiving people, multiplying the grace that we ourselves have received. 